We've been dealing with uh, systemic racism in particular for 400 years in North America, 400 years. And then there's a few that it's gonna be dealt with within five years or six years, it's gonna be solved. No, it might not happen in my generation, but just like Dr. King would pass, and if he was alive today, he would go, wow, I'm glad I started when I started in the 60s. Welcome to Mission Critical, a podcast about the big picture, the purpose, and the values that drive today's most game-changing companies, entrepreneurs, and leaders. I'm your host, Lance Chung, Editor-in-Chief of Bay Street Bull, and I'll be introducing you to a group of brilliant minds who are making an impact on the world and forging the path ahead. While they may all be very different from one another, the question remains the same. What's your mission? Take a look inside the boardrooms of corporate Canada and you'll find that over the years, they've largely stayed and looked the same. While it's been proven again and again and again that a diverse executive suite directly contributes to the growth of a company's bottom line and overall performance and is just generally the right thing to do, straight, white, cisgender men have kept the C-suite looking pretty much the same for a long, long time. Wes Hall is working to change that. One of Canada's most powerful figures on Bay Street, Wes is the executive chairman and founder behind Kingsdale Advisors, an investor on Dragon's Den, and the founder of the Black North Initiative, a nonprofit whose mission is to end anti-Black systemic racism in the corporate world. In the wake of the George Floyd murder and Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, Wes was moved to take action by doing what he does best, by using business as a vessel for change specifically by having the country's top executives and companies commit to diversifying key decision-making positions. Almost two years since he founded the nonprofit, I chat with Wes on today's episode about building Black North, their racial equity playbook, and how long it takes to realistically make progress. Hi, Wes. How are you? Thanks. How are you doing? It's been a while. It's been a while. Um, I know you're not in Toronto today. Where are you zooming in from? Well, I'm yeah, zooming in from an undisclosed exotic location that's not minus six <laughs> degrees. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, it's so nice to be connected again. Uh, you know, it's been a while since we last chatted, and so much has happened. Um, you know, culturally from the business landscape, just everything, right? So um, it's really nice to see your face even through a screen and um, have a little chat, um, you know, obviously about some big things too. You know, I wanted to talk to you today about dismantling anti-Black systemic racism here in Canada, in the corporate world, uh, in our own communities, and it's, it's not a talking point, it's a dialogue that we need to have throughout the year. And so I, I really appreciate you taking your time um, to sit down and, and chat about you know, this, uh, this really big topic that we need to continue to discuss. Yeah, well, you know, when I started this whole thing, it was, first of all, it's a lofty goal, right? To dismantle systemic racism, anti-Black systemic racism in Canada. So that was the, that was a lofty goal. Yeah. And as I as I go through and start to look at it, I'm like, okay, maybe I should make the goal a little loftier and make it global. Uh, so this is not just a something that we're going to do here in Canada, but we're going to do it 
all over the world. Yeah. So since uh, the Black North Initiative has been announced, we've been getting calls from people all over the world, literally in uh, the UK, in Europe, uh, in the United States. Uh, we want to do the same thing in our market. So how can we work with you to make that happen? Yeah. So even though the goal initially was lofty that we want to do it in Canada, people say, well, why don't you start in Toronto? We decided that we want to go bigger and make it global. Right. Create a blueprint that others can use in their own communities, in their own businesses, um, because, you know, it's the bigger picture here, right? It's not just within Canada. It's, you know, with within our our society, right? So you and I have known each other for a few years now. And in that time, you've created Black North Initiative back in 2020. For those who are listening that may not be as familiar, what is the Black North Initiative? Why did you create it just as kind of like a top level summary on um, on the organization? So the, uh, the, the whole issue behind um, Black North really started before 2020. Back in 2018, September 2018 to be exact, I sent around a note over LinkedIn to a whole bunch of people, Black folks in particular, that I saw by just going through link, my LinkedIn pages and I would look at people wearing a suit with a certain title that's Black and I could go, I would reach out to them and say, hey, I wanna form this group. And I wanna you know, use this group as a way to change the conversation with respect to how Black people are perceived in particular on Bay Street. And I sent this note to people and folks didn't really know what to make of it because it's just some random guy <laughs> sending a note saying, hey, we wanted to change uh, the way Black people are perceived. A number of people responded to it. And we wanted to invite uh, Justin Trudeau, uh, the prime minister, to come to a private gathering of uh, a small group of Black folks and to have a fireside chat to talk about how we can work with the government to change the narrative. Unfortunately, the prime minister, you know, he booked the event, but then he had to cancel. And I decided to host the event at my house. And uh, we had six to five people that came. We started just talking, just talking about the issues and talking about the fact that there's a lack of representation on Bay Street. And after I said, listen, let's continue to communicate. So I called the group Black North. And then 2020 came and somebody came to me and said, hey, have you seen the video? And there were a lot of videos going around in 2020, right? There is the video of Christian Cooper, the bird watcher in uh, New York. There's the Ahmed Arbery video. There's, you know, there's all these videos, right? So I said, of course, I've seen the video. But they said, no, no, no. There's one that's more egregious, the one with uh, George Floyd. And I go, no, I haven't seen that. So I looked at it. And when I saw it, I immediately was struck by the inhumanity of it all. How here's a man that was treated a certain way. And the only reason why he was treated like that was because of the color of his skin. And so I looked in the mirror, I was in my work off, home office working from home virtually. And I literally had a mirror in front of me and I looked in the mirror and I saw George Floyd. I saw George Floyd because all I saw was a black man reflecting back at me. And I decided to write an op-ed for the Globe and Mail and the op-ed was entitled, When I Look in the Mirror, I See George Floyd. And I talked about my experience as a Black Canadian and the various things that I go through just because I'm Black. And one of the experiences that I talked about was me jogging through my neighborhood in Toronto, affluent neighborhood. 
And I saw a white woman fell in front of me and I hesitated to help her because I didn't know she was disoriented. And because I'm the only black person in the neighborhood, the police would show up, which yeah. most were white. And next thing you know, I'm in handcuffs, right? So I said, I hesitated and how many of my neighbors would in my position? And I start to get calls from all these different business leaders saying, I didn't know, I didn't know that people like you experience these things in this country. And it may seem like it's naive when somebody would respond that way, because those leaders would look around their boardrooms and see that there are no black people in their boardrooms. They would also look around their C-suites and realize that there are no black people in their C-suite because uh, 0.8% of the positions, the executive positions are black, 0.8%. That's a very, very small number. So what does that mean? It means that if you're really empathetic towards what's what I'm going through as a black person, maybe you can be a part of the solution. And so I said, let's form an organization and let's call the organization the Canadian Council of Business Leaders Against Anti-Black Systemic Racism. But because it's such a mouthful, I said, let's call it a Black North Initiative for short. And let's agree that we're gonna look at our own organization as leaders at the very top of the organization. And we're gonna look at the board first and we're gonna look across the boardroom table and see whether or not we have black people occupying any of the board positions. And if the answer is no, let's agree that we're gonna mandate as the CEO that our business will will do something about that. And because black people represent three and a half percent of the population in in Canada, we're gonna allocate three and a half percent of the board roles to black folks. And while we're doing that, we're going to go into the C-suite and we're going to say, look around the C-suite table. Are there black folks there? And if they're not, we're going to use the same thing. We're going to say three and a half percent of black. And then we're going to go right into the pipeline. We're going to look in the student population. We're going to put percentage towards that. We're going to look at the sponsorship dollars that we spend. You know, uh, seven cents of every $100 spent on major charities in Canada, only seven cents are spent on black related charities. Right. So when we sponsor things and we donate money towards causes, we're going to make sure that causes related to, relating to Black Canadians are, are supported. And we ask them to sign a pledge as the CEO. It's not the company that's signing the pledge. It's actually the CEO saying, as the leader of this organization, I am going to say that I'm committed to doing these things while I'm the leader of this, this organization. And, uh, and that's what we've done. So we have over 500, close to 500 companies that have signed that pledge, representing $1.3 trillion in value. And the, the numbers keep growing. And every day there's new companies that jump on board and say, we want to do that. And some of the largest companies in, the, in Canada, banks, insurance companies, pension funds, uh, have signed that pledge to, uh, to make that commitment uh, to change. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And a lot of work in a short amount of time. And so how do you, the business community, as we see during this time of year, as we see during times of tension, the business community may be quick to, I guess, provide lip service, be quick to say a lot of things, make pledges. How do we keep them accountable to actually implementing policy changes within uh, their organizations and actually change the DNA and the foundation of their companies so that it's not just them changing the organization as it stands today, but it's also sustainable moving forward. 
Well, you know, Lance, it's uh, interesting because you, you're right. It's uh, the flavor of the day, flavor of the month. We've seen this movie before. We've seen it in the 60s. The civil mm-hmm. rights movement started in the 60s. Uh, we see it in the 70s. We see it in the, in the 90s with Rodney King. You remember when Rodney King was beat up by LA police officers and there was this demonstration, not only just in LA, but it was all over the world that actually came to Toronto as well. And people are saying, we're going to do something about it. This time around, it's maybe a little bit different, but I just felt that even though we were saying that we're going to do something about it back in the 60s, the 70s, the 90s, I don't think that there's anyone that said, okay, except for, you know, Dr. King and, and others back in the 60s, but what happened to them? You know, Dr. King was assassinated and then the movement ended, mm. right? But there was, and, and in the 90s, nobody really took it up and say, let's take it to the next level with respect to Rodney King. It just kind of got dropped. And so this time around, I just felt that we need to do something differently because that window seemed to open every 30 years, right? And we can't wait for another 30 years for that window to open again and then shut for another 30 years. Uh, So I said, let's start this organization and let's be deliberate about it, right? So when you look at the Black North board, for example, when you look at the makeup of that board, is some of the most powerful and influential business leaders in this country. People who, when they say something, people listen to them. And when they say, I'm committing to do these things, and to the extent whereby I'm going to sit on a board of an organization that's committed to doing these things, we know that it's not just lip service. We know for a fact that a number of those companies, a significant number of those companies, have already started to do things and change. They've already started to put black folks on their board. They've already started to put black uh, money in the black community. They started to loan banks who loan in money to black entrepreneurs. And in particular, uh, this month, which is Black History Month, we're gonna see a number of announcements of the amazing things that some of these companies are doing already. And we gotta understand as well that these companies are big, massive companies. And it's almost like turning around a super tanker. You know, it takes time to, to, to happen. Uh, however, these companies, when you think about signing a pledge back in 2020, and now it's like two years later, and the things that they've done for their size, it's actually pretty impressive. Yeah. And I know last year, uh, there was some articles written about the movement isn't fast enough, but we gave them a five-year commitment to make these changes. And so we certainly didn't expect within a year that we're going to see 30, 40, 50% of those changes because these are massive organizations. They're going to have to look for talent. They're going to have to recruit talent. They're going to have to do all these different things to put these things, systems in place to start to see the results of their hard work. So I believe strongly that in the next year, two years tops, you're going to see monumental changes across the landscape uh, uh, for those companies who signed the pledge. Some will not do anything. Some just kind of was trying to, did it to get the pressure off. But I can tell you the mass majority, the vast majority of companies rather that have signed the pledge intend on initiating the things that they've uh, committed to doing. Yeah, and I want to build on that too, because I think when we have these kind of big, uh, kind of like a groundswell where, you know, we're signing pledges and we're, we're kind of making these statements, there is an 
expectation, I guess, from, you know, the audience or the crowd in terms of how, what the, the turnaround in terms of action can be and what does progress mean in terms of a timeline. So, you know, building on that, like how, what is realistic in terms of being able to manifest change? Is it about speed? Um, and, and how do you expect these companies, some of them very large institutions, you know, these big super tankers to rebuild their entire infrastructure you know it's not an overnight job and obviously we want changes to happen quickly but also can't expect it necessarily to to happen within a night a week month a year whatever it is right so what's realistic yeah a good question because uh, i'm a part of the sick kids foundation board and uh our mandate is very simple at sick kids is to make sure that we look after and provide quality health care for children that's it this organization is built for that purpose. I also support the Cancer Foundation, and that organization is set up to cure cancer. But we don't expect that sick kids will just, okay, we cured a bunch of kids. It's been five years, it's been 10 years. Well, let's just disband this organization and move on. We've done our job. We don't expect the Cancer Foundation to say, you know what, it's gonna be, we're gonna, we're gonna find a cure for cancer in like five years or six years right? Some of these things could take generations before we start to see the results. It might miss our generation. We might never see it in our lifetime, but other generations will benefit from it. And that's the reason why you have to start at some point. And so we're saying to folks, we know that this is a long-term vision. We set up an organization to cure anti-Black systemic racism, okay? It's not going to happen overnight because you're changing attitudes. And once you're changing people's attitudes, right, it's going to take time and it could take generations before you change that. We've been dealing with uh, systemic racism in particular for 400 years in North America, 400 years. And then there's a view that it's going to be dealt with within five years or six years. It's going to be solved. No, it might not happen in my generation, but just like Dr. King would pass. And if he was alive today, he would go, wow, I'm glad I started what I started in the 60s because there has been movement as a result of what he started in the 60s. So it's the same thing in, in myself and others that are doing it today. In 30 years from now, we're gonna be looking back and go, we're glad that we started what we did back in 2020 because we're seeing the benefits now. It's always incremental because we're dealing with such large ingrained issue and that that are very divisive in a lot of cases. And to do that, it takes time to actually see the the full fruitage of the hard work that's put into uh, fixing the system. And so when these companies are signing the pledge, you know, I'm sure that they have some questions in terms of maybe where to start. And I saw recently that uh, Black North worked with uh, the Boston Consulting Group to create a racial equity playbook. What are the key tenets of this playbook? Uh, who is it helping? What's What kind of blueprint is it providing, I suppose? Yeah, so that playbook costs $500,000 to put together. And we are actually creating it for the benefit of those people who've actually signed the pledge. So when you think about it, 
you go into an organization, you're saying that we would like our organization to be inclusive and diverse. Where do you start? Like, where do you start if you really don't have an organization that's inclusive and diverse today? Maybe you have diversity in your mind as gender and you focused on that, but now you have to widen it out a little bit more. So what we've done with the playbook is to give people a, a step-by-step approach to designing their racial equity uh, strategy within their own organization, step-by-step. If you have this, now you need to move on to doing this one here. So it's a step-by-step approach as to what it is and what is equality and what is equity. A lot of people don't really know what those expressions really mean and the differences between the two. So some may say that my organization is equal because we treat everybody the same way, but is it equitable? Does it take into account that we all started from different places? So if you treat uh, me the same way as a guy who grows up in Rosedale, and I grew up in Malvern, and you treat us the same way, well, you're not being equitable. You're being equal, but you're not being equitable because Mm -hmm. you don't take into account the fact that I came from a very tough neighborhood. I I left to my parents' home when uh, when I was 18 years old. I had to finish my education on my own. I had to work two, three, four jobs to be able to do that. Whereas the kid from Rosedale just kind of go to school, parents pay for it, and they just have to focus on getting A's, right? And I did all those things and, and I bucked all the trends and then I got a B plus, but I didn't get the job because I didn't get an A and you only hire A students. So equity and equality should be viewed very differently in organizations. And that's what the racial equity playbook does. It actually allows you to see the difference and to take into account people's lived experiences, which is really key. Right. And helping people understand the nuances between these words that sometimes can be pretty buzzy um, and used a lot in improperly, I suppose. Yes, exactly right. So we're, you know, kind of around two years since the start of Black North. What have been some of the major milestones in this relatively short amount of time? Well, we've had 16 committees that's been working very hard on different things. Uh, one of the things we're really, really proud of is this home ownership bridge program. What is that? One of the biggest concerns that we're hearing from people is there's not enough uh, housing in Toronto, or at least affordable uh, housing in Toronto. But we know that a lot of wealth is created by by owning your own home, right? A lot of wealth. But unfortunately, you can't come up with a down payment. There's a study in Toronto, in Canada, that indicated, CIBC did it, that a huge percentage, I think it was like 80% or something like that, of the new homes that are bought by first-time buyers, they get the deposit from the uh, the bank of mom and dad. Their moms and dads just gave them 20 grand or gave them 50 grand or 100 grand and say, go buy your first home. Well, if you're in a, uh, from an underprivileged neighborhood, you don't have the bank of mom and dad to rely on. Mm-hmm. You know, so we were able to work with municipalities, the governments, philanthropists, builders, to create a a product that we would get now these black people, in particular women, because um, a lot of single mothers, single parents are black women in in Canada, to give them access to be able to buy and own a home without having to come up with that sizable down payment. And we use this concept of sweat equity for them to actually come up with their down payment. So what does that mean, sweat equity? 
we hear it often in business where you, you, you talk to a founder and he said, listen, I'm raising money. And you ask, how much money do you have invested in a business? He said, it's, it's sweat equity. You have sweat equity. Well, sweat equity has a value. Mm-hmm. And business people put a value on sweat equity, right? So why don't we put the same value on sweat equity when it comes to home ownership? For example, instead of the single mother coming up with $50,000 for a down payment, how about she donates her time in the community to help to improve the lives of others in the community. That's creating value to the community and value to her. That's sweat equity. And let's come up with a creative ways to actually fund that project. Again, the builders take a haircut, philanthropists put some money in, all these different third parties participate in the governments participate in Brampton, the Peel region, for example, put forward $2.5 million towards the program. That's really massive. So we're going to be able to provide across Canada over 2,000 homes to families that uh, single families, in particular single women, uh, Black women, that would never have had the opportunity. Now, once she owned her home, for example, she's now going to be able to leverage the equity built into that home to be able to send her kids to university. And when those kids graduate with a, uh, that, that, that university degree, they now can come out of community housing and hopefully get that decent job whereby they can buy a home of their own. So when you think about that mindset, it's really about changing people's thinking as opposed to because at the end of the day, if you rent perpetually, you're not going to have any equity built into renting. Yeah. If you come up with the, 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 the process that we come up with, now you're going to be able to build equity and you can leverage that equity to uh, educate your children or to start a business and to create more value for yourself out of that. You know, I was a perfect example of that. You know, I owned a home, fortunately. I put a mortgage of $100,000 against the home that create the wealth that I have today. And just compounding on that generationally exactly. too. Yeah, exactly right. My kids are going to be doing the same thing and their kids hopefully are doing the same thing because now their mindset has changed as a result of what I've done. Yeah, definitely. Now, outside of Black North, I mean, I just want to talk about whether it's Black History Month or any other month of the year, you know, what should every company be asking themselves in terms of how they run and operate themselves, whether it's a large corporation or a small mom and pop business through the lens of what we're talking about today? So, so the way that I look at it is that Black History Month should be 12 months of the year, <laughs> okay? You know, there shouldn't be a month to decide to say, we're going to recognize these groups at certain time of year. And that's what, unfortunately, companies have done, right? They just go, we're going to recognize uh, Indigenous people once a year. We're going to recognize all these various groups once a year. It should be something that's in our consciousness all the time. And But at least you got to start at some point whereby everybody goes, yeah, you know what, we should recognize these people because right and over time it's not just that once a year but people are thinking about it because of what happened that once a year right when we think about you know the holocaust and what happened with the holocaust for example you know if we didn't have a memorial of the event we probably would have forgotten what happened especially as generations passes mm-hmm. we tend to we forget mm-hmm. so we do need that, that you know once a year m- memorial so that people don't forget what these people went through and go back to their old ways because generations later, people go, I don't remember. I didn't know this, right? We need to keep on reminding generations, but it doesn't really mean that when that month is over, 
that our attitudes change towards that, that those people that we're honoring that month. And so I'm hoping that with Black History Month, it continues to highlight all the great work, not just the struggle. You know, Black History Month is not to highlight the struggles only of what Black people went through in uh, uh, 400 years of slavery, but it's also to, to highlight the accomplishments of, of a lot of Black Canadians, right? As a result, even with obstacles they've experienced that, look at what they've done with one hand tied behind their back. Could you imagine if we remove that, that string and let them compete you know, equally, equitably, how much uh, better our society would be? This is not about progressing and, and, and promoting Black people and make them rich and successful. When we use the best of us to help solve problems, it's solving a problem for everybody, right? And it's not just uh, Black Canadians, everybody's gonna be benefited from you know, the talent that we bring to the table when we're inclusive. Yeah, and that's I think that's an important you know distinction to make too because when we have moments like Black History Month, or you know International Women's Day or Pride or any kind of these big like community moments throughout the year, so much of our energy is spent towards talking about the past trauma and struggles, which is very important. But I don't think enough emphasis is placed on also celebrating the success stories that are coming out of it and and being optimistic about the road ahead as well and 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 how much has been built and how much potential there is to build and how you know we can be excited and hopeful for it as well you know it, when if you've been through trauma do you view yourself as a victim or a survivor mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. you know because the people who are positive about using that trauma to their to their benefit are those people who view themselves as a survivor right not a victim a victim is always sitting there going i can't believe what happened to me and they just kept on talking about what happened to me a survivor is someone who kept on saying in spite of what happened to me look what i've done look what i've done and kept on talking about the positive things that they've done. So I think Black History Month have a, have a dual role, right? Yes, we're gonna look back, you know, because I always say, if, you, if you're driving and you look in the rear view mirror and that's the only place you look, you're gonna crash, right? The rear view mirror is there for you to glance at, right? So that you can see what's behind you. And if you've made mistakes, you don't repeat them. But this big windshield in front of you is what you should really pay attention to because that's where the opportunity is. And so for us as, as Black folks, especially those who've uh, made success of ourselves, we got to focus on the opportunities as opposed to the struggles that we went through. Yeah, definitely. You know, in terms of what we've been discussing today with Black North and, and just the general community overall, where are we at today compared to two years ago when you started Black North? How, you know, where are we at in this dialogue? Uh, hopefully not in the same place. You know, hopefully we've made a, a little bit of progress there, a lot of progress. But where, you know, in your view, where are we right now? And and what do we, what are the next steps we need to do? Yeah, <laughs> that's a bigger question, things, but yeah. No, I get it. Uh, you know, one of the things that I was so proud of, there was a black man who owned a gym. And I know they, they, that business has been really des- decimated as a result of COVID. But he came to me and he said, Wes, for the first time, I'm, I'm proud to be a black man and a black business owner, right? For the first time. Mm-hmm. It's the pride that this creates in people that now people are gonna look at them differently, not with suspicion. You know, yeah. we're used to walking in a, 
in a store to buy something and somebody kind of just follows around and go, can you afford to buy that watch or can you afford to buy that Louis Vuitton bag? And now we have the ability, if that company signed the pledge, that they're going to train their employees that we're customers and we're going to buy the goods. Mm-hmm. And those employees are going to treat us very differently. So that's what makes us proud because we now know because of this movement, there is the way that we're perceived will change, right? And it goes everywhere, right? I was at the airport, for example, and somebody said to me uh, when I went to the priority desk and the person, without even looking at my boarding pass, you're in the wrong line, sir. You belong in the economy line. Wow. And I showed them the boarding pass and they looked at it and let me through. Now, with the government signing, because that's a security person for the government, signing the pledge, they're going to say that's unacceptable and they're going to train that attitude out of that person, right? In addition to that, if the airport signed the pledge, the airport is also going to train that attitude out of people. But if I'm working for a bank and the bank signed the pledge, the fact that I'm uh, in a leadership position at a bank means that I'm going to earn the income to be able to fly in the front of the plane, right? So nobody's going to assume that I don't belong there because I don't get the job on Bay Street or wherever in corporate Canada that allows me to fly in the front of the plane. And the people who are actually doing the day-to-day work, whether it be they're working for the airline or whomever, because those organizations are part of this initiative and they're using that racial play equity, equity playbook in their organization, it's now gonna mean better things and brighter things for me as a black person interacting with those organizations. Keep in mind that what we're saying is that we're not fighting racism. We can't fight racism. I can't prevent you from not liking me because I'm black. What I can prevent if I'm a leader in an organization is to prevent you from putting things in place as a hiring manager to not hire me or not promote me because I'm black. So what I'm doing is I'm taking away the barrier. I'm changing the system that causes you to withhold something from me because of the color of my skin. But you can still hate black people probably, right? But it just means that you're not going to be put in a place whereby you're going to prevent me from advancing. And that goes back to tackling anti-black systemic racism keyword systemic you know it, it is ingrained and we're trying to to get that out of you know it's it's a cancer society basically we're trying to get that out of the system that's correct we're trying to remove something that doesn't belong but it's hidden so it's disguised so well mm-hmm. that when somebody pointed out people are going i don't know what you're talking about you know it's not like it's obvious you know it's obvious when somebody call your name Right, that's the obvious part, but it's not obvious when someone withhold an opportunity from you, because that person can easily say, "Well, you're just not qualified." Yeah, yeah. Well, I gave it to this person because, right? So it's so well disguised that it's not easy for people to point it out and call it out, and that's the reason why you have to put systems in place to deal with it before it can start to affect in people. And you can almost like, you know, people go, you don't trust me. 
It's not a matter of trust. If I put proper systems in place, I don't have to trust you because you're always going to do the right thing. Yeah, absolutely. Now, as we kind of wrap up on our on our chat today, I want to also just touch on, um, you know, you're an investor on Dragon's Den. What is the biggest kind of observation you've made, you know, about the entrepreneurial community here in Canada and the potential for it or where it's going in? And what's kind of like the key advice that you would give to anyone pitching to you or, you know, whether it's not, it's on the shore or not, like anyone that is looking to build up their, their own empire? Well, first of all, I practice what I preach, right? Lance, I became very, very successful by promoting and supporting and investing in BIPOC entrepreneurs. Pretty much all my investments are behind BIPOC entrepreneurs. Mm. And I've hit some home runs, massive home runs. I can't even find the ball. (laughs) And so I go, that's my secret sauce. I invest in people that others view as uninvestable. And I go, I just don't want to be the one, the only person to get all the success. I want others to get it too. I want others to experience how amazing these people are as well. You know, think about the success of your business, you know, run by you and think about how much energy you put into the success of your brand and your business. And then somebody has the gall to say, well, I'm not going to invest behind Lance's business. And the only reason they give you is fluff. Right? They tell you, well, I don't really invest in that type of business or I don't, but you know that it's because of the fact that, you know, you're a minority. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you know the, the, the beauty about uh, discrimination is that you know when you're discriminated against. You yeah. know, somebody don't have to tell you that you discriminate against. You know, you walk in a room and you know when you walk in a room that you should not be in this room or you got to figure out a way to kind of get these people to like you because they don't like you. And the only reason I don't like you is because they don't like the way you look, right? It's a sixth sense that like people of color or in minority yeah. groups kind of have to like just naturally develop, <laughs> you it know? Yeah. Any minority group that you go into, if you are from the LGBTQ plus community, you're going to develop that sixth sense. Right. So why is it that people, when people call out, call it out, people are like so shocked and surprised and dismayed. I can't believe you call me that or I can't believe you think I'm like that because we have that sixth sense and we know you're like that. Right. And we're calling it out so that hopefully you'll change. Right. So with with being on, on Dragon's Den, for me, it opens the doors for a lot of people who look like me to go, wait a minute, this is possible. And to not focus on them being a victim, but for focus on them being a survivor, that in spite of the fact that they have all these obstacles, people not loaning them money, that people don't trust that they're going to make money with them because of the color of their skin, they go, wait a minute, that guy West Hall did it. And, and, and that guy Lance Strong did it. And if they did it, and they're so public about doing it, I can do it too. So when I see those Black entrepreneurs and those BIPOC entrepreneurs come in front of me, because of the fact that I've made so much money over the years supporting these people, it's a no-brainer to me. It's almost like, listen, what happens when you go and you're raising money and you go to all these different funds and you show them your slide deck? What do you start with? All your successes, all the things that you've done in the past and all the money that you've made in the past, right? Why do you do that? To let people know that your money is safe with me and you're going to make money too. 
you may not make money in this deal, right? This deal could be a flop, but you look at their history and their track record and you invest based on their track record. If I have a track record of doing very well, invested in BIPOC entrepreneurs, why wouldn't I look at them favorably when they come to me on the show? Yeah, absolutely. Right? Why wouldn't I give them an edge? Because that's where my sweet spot has been. So if they come and they present well, and they have the numbers are backed up, and they answer the questions appropriately, they will always get my investment, always. I love that. I love that. Last question. What is your mission, your purpose? What's the bigger picture for you? You know, before when I was younger, I go, you know, I want to make enough money to buy a car and a house and uh, get married and have a few kids. And I always had this number five children in, in, in the back of my mind. I want to have five kids. I didn't really know how difficult it was to raise kids. And, and then I found out how difficult it was and I still have five kids. So that's the goal that I kept. I do have a house and I do have a few cars. Those are the material aspect. I didn't have the, I want to do this for humanity aspect, right? I didn't have that part in the future. And now I'm able to build that. I'm able to now incorporate that. And it turns out that that part is the most important part for me today. How can I change people's lives for the better today? Yeah. How can I make sure that when I'm past, that I leave this world a better place? And, uh, and that people go, this person did certain things that advances people. And one of the things that was told to me by one of my good friends, he said, Wes, you know, when you come from poverty, you become a first responder. And your role is to go back into poverty and pull as many people out as you possibly can. Mm. Right? Once we achieve a certain level of worldly success, meaning that the money, the power, the fame, what do we do with that? Because if we do nothing with that, then that's not success in my book. Yeah, I love that. Thank you so much for this, you know, really important moving conversation. It's nice to also just chat again and, and see you as well. And just thank you for the visibility and the work that you're providing the community. And it's not even just the black community. It's just people of color and minorities as well, because it is all to working towards a bigger picture, you know? So, um, I, you know, thank you so much. And um, I really appreciate the time. Yeah, and, and, and your own organization, Bay Street Bull, as well, Lance, has been, I, I've seen the growth and I've seen the important work that you're doing, highlighting excellence. And, uh, and I'm certainly uh, uh, glad to be a part of uh, one of your stories of, of that and to see the continued evolution of, uh, of the work you're doing. So, so I appreciate that as well. According to a 2020 study released by Ryerson University's Diversity Institute, only 0.79% of board members surveyed across 178 corporations were black, while 91% were white. Similarly, a 2021 report conducted by the Prosperity Project and KPMG Canada called the Zero Report revealed that 89% of the corporations surveyed, which are among Canada's largest, had zero black women in a leadership position or on track to one. Needless to say, there is still a lot of work that needs to be done. Wes knows this, we all know this. And some days it may feel like we've made no headway. But progress is happening. Change is happening. It may not happen overnight, 
but it's about planting the seeds of change today so that we can build a more equitable tomorrow. Black North is just one example of the many organizations and people working towards a brighter future. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd appreciate it if you left a review on Apple Podcasts so we can get the word out. To keep up to date, subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, ask yourself, what's your mission?